Father, it's good to be back together again after these weeks apart, and I'm so grateful for all that are here and for the opportunity to gather in the name of our Lord Jesus and to um, come together as his people, as those who share in his life, uh, to learn, to be encouraged, to be edified, and to be encouragers of one another. And so, Father, we pray that you'll bless our time together, that you will give us uh, prepared and receptive minds and hearts, that you will instruct us and that you will build us up and that we will leave today uh, with a renewed joy, a renewed sense of faith and devotion and that this will be a fruitful time, not just for today, uh, but for all eternity. So bless us as we come together, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're continuing forward in our study of Genesis and ultimately moving again through the whole of the scriptures. And I, I just want to emphasize again how important it is for us to come to the scriptures recognizing that what they're doing is telling the story of God's purposes that are bound up in Christ. We don't just have a bunch of, you know, uh, the way we were taught kind of in Sunday school to think about the scriptures as here's the story of this and here's the story of that and here's this episode of this and this episode of that. But the scriptural writers led by the Spirit are constructing the story selecting what they choose to deal with, what they choose not to deal with, based on their intent to capture um, this purpose of God that, as I say, is ultimately bound up in the person and the work of Jesus himself. And so as we're reading, even though we're way back in the book of Genesis and in kind of a very ancient time, we need to see uh, through the lens, we need to be reading through the lens, the perspective that the writer is gathering in this material for the sake of, again, building the case of how it is that God will do what he will do, not just for human beings, but for the whole creation. So we've kind of laid the foundation in Genesis 1 through 11, the things that we've considered to this point. And that sets the stage for what I'm calling the patriarch narratives. Patriarch just means the fathers. And the balance of Genesis focuses on the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And really, primarily, Jacob. He's the main character in the second half of the, the book of, of Genesis. But we've seen how Genesis is partitioned up into... Ten separate books, if you will, associated with generations, uh, uh, so-called generation sections. And the Abraham narrative is the sixth of those. We first have the generations of the heavens and the earth, then the generations of Adam, then the generations of Noah, then of Noah's sons, then of Shem, and then now of Abram. So the text moves very quickly from Shem as the one who is uniquely identified in the post-flood human race consisting of Noah, his wife, and his sons. Shem is the one who is identified as particularly the one um, that God singles out. God is the God of Shem. 
And then from Shem, we move very quickly uh, to the man Terah. And that uh, Terah, the, the generations of Terah is the sixth generation section. But Terah's own uh, genealogy has its focal point in Abraham himself. So Genesis 12 then introduces the Abraham narrative and the call to Abraham that begins that narrative narrows the focus of the story in Genesis to that one man. And it formally initiates the process of restoration that had been portrayed in the flood. The flood we saw represents a kind of uh, typological or preparatory new creation. Noah's like a new Adam. They come off the boat and they're told, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. God has, in a sense, started a new creation. And we see that as we move very quickly to Abram, somehow it's going to be in connection with this man, Abram, that God will accomplish that work. Already back in Genesis 3, we saw that God tied this renewal to a human being a descendant of Eve. And now it's come that that progress of revelation has come to rest on Abraham. And he becomes foundational from this point forward. If you think about even the way the gospel of Matthew begins, it begins with Matthew. And again, all the gospel writers are trying to show how this man, Jesus of Nazareth, is the Messiah God had promised to Israel. And then ultimately to the whole world in and through Israel. And Matthew's uh, Matthew's presentation of Jesus begins with his genealogy as the son of Abraham. So he recognizes that Abraham is foundational in this story that culminates with the Messiah. And Paul very much also puts Abraham front and center as he makes his arguments about Israel, God's dealings with Israel, uh, God's intent for the Gentiles. He puts Abraham front and center in that. So Abraham and his story and the significance of Abraham is, is absolutely critical to our understanding of the scriptural story uh, as it comes to find its, its, um, um, its terminus, its focal point in Jesus himself. So as I say in the notes, God's covenant with Abram also provides God's answer to the human assertion in Babel. Remember at Babel, the the goal was human beings, the human race in a sense collectively coming together with the belief and the intent to make a name for themselves. The idea of making a name, meaning establishing one's own identity, significance, purpose, Man would become man through his own efforts. And God foiled that effort, but he had already identified uh, his intent to give man a name, even by identifying himself with Shem. Shem means name. So God would make a name for man. God would see man attain to his human identity and purpose. And thus the promise in in the garden has now moved itself forward to where it focuses on Abraham himself. Abram was God's answer to man's attempt to establish his own greatness by making a name for himself. God would make Abram's name great, thus fulfilling Shem's own name. And thus Abram was the focal point for the salvation history going forward and ultimately for God's restoration of sacred space his dwelling in and with his creation. 
So I want to treat, and this really takes us from chapter 12 all the way um, into 21. And I want to deal with that in terms of kind of two main sections. You have the general flow beginning with Abram's call. You have the flow of his answering that call as he makes his way down through the land of Canaan, moving north to south. And the four main um, places associated with that movement are Shechem, Bethel, Hebron, and then Beersheba, moving from north to south. So the, the text kind of traces Abraham's answering of God's call and the, the forming of the, the covenant with him in terms of his movement through those places. But there are also some other side episodes that have their own kind of significance and parallelism. You, you have two episodes involving pagan kings and Sarah. You have the situation with Sodom and Gomorrah. And then you also have the situation with Abraham being drawn into the conflict between nine kings in that Canaanite region. So I want to deal with the movement uh, associated with the call of Abram and then look at those side things in relation to that because those episodes, those side episodes, have to be interpreted in terms of Abram's calling, his covenant status with God. So the call is given to us in chapter 12, and we can see that very briefly. We'll just read the first couple of verses. Chapter 12, verse 1, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And interestingly, the writer here uses God's covenant name, Yahweh. He hasn't even been known in that way. He will not reveal himself even to Abram in that way. Uh, But yet the writer chose to identify God in that way, showing the significance of where this is going. Go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house to the land which I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and I will make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram is the root of Israel. If Israel is kind of the main Uh, entity or focal point of the Old Testament scriptures, Israel has its origin in Abram. There is no Israel at this point. There is no Hebrew people. There is no covenant nation. In fact, God calls Abram out of, as a Mesopotamian man, he and his father, his father's family were all idolaters. They were worshipers of false gods in Mesopotamia. So this is the beginning of a new stage of God's interaction with human beings. And Abram is the root out of which Israel will grow. You see Paul speaking that way in Romans 9 through 11. Abram as the root. Called out of the pagan world to form a new people defined by covenant relationship with the God of all creation and therefore the God who is the God of all men. And God calls Abram to forsake his life circumstance, leave your people, leave your country, leave his life circumstance, also his native land. And the point is that God is going to, in Abram, form a household. 
a covenant family who will dwell with him in the place of his own chosen habitation. Leave your family, leave your countrymen, leave your country and go to a place that I will show you. Now, at this point, you just have a bare call. You don't have a lot of definition. This isn't the covenant. This is just God's first outreach to Abram. But it's the foundation for the covenant, which we see ratified in chapter 15 years later. But the promise here has seven components, all centered in this principle of blessing in relation to God. So the first four things mentioned in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, pertain to Abram's personal and national greatness. The second three, the first four are that, the second three clarify how it is and why it is and the significance of Abram's greatness. The first four establish what will be his greatness, the last three explain the basis for that greatness, the significance of that greatness, and how it is that he would be a blessing to others. So Abram's greatness is bound up in his unique status and favor. He is uniquely called of God. God would bless Abram in order that he would be a blessing to all mankind. And I have in quotation marks there, note the reciprocating pattern of God's interaction with mankind. You start with one man who is to fill the earth. As men begin to fill the earth, they do so in the context of being sons of Adam in his corruption. So they're filling the earth with corruption. So God brings it back down to one man again, through whom He will again universalize this, but ultimately again bring all of that universalization back down to one man again in whom he will then universalize it, not just to the human race, but to the whole creation. As Paul says, the summing up of everything in the creation in the Messiah. So there's a reciprocation in, in God's dealings. Narrow, wide, narrow, wide, narrow, wide. That's the point I'm making there. But... The idea is that God is promising that Abram will be a blessing to all the families of the earth. There is a global aspect to Abram's calling. And that harkens back, it should in our minds take us back as an echo to again the human mandate to fill the earth. The human race to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and so in that sense cause the created order, the the world, to become God's dwelling place. As human beings who are the image and likeness of God fill the earth with his life and likeness, they, in a sense, are extending God's presence and mind and will and rule over the earth. And the the call to Abram is grounded in that purpose of God and advances it. So Beale says in his book, the mention of all the nations of the earth being blessed by Abram's seed alludes to a renewed human community bearing God's image and filling the earth with regenerated progeny, offspring, who also reflect God's image and shine out its luminosity to others in the city of man who do not rebel and also come to reflect God. So then the text begins to show Abram's answer to that call. And I don't want to go into all those details. 
but he and his family, they go to Haran. From there, Abram and Sarah make their way down into Canaan after a time in Haran. Which actually, if you, if you look from Ur, you go up the Euphrates northwest, then they have to come back down. And I think the reason for that path is to stay along the river. You know, you, you need water, you need resource. If, you, if they came south, they'd have to go through the wilderness of Sinai, the, the desert, the Arabian desert. But anyway, they do make their way to Canaan. And when God called Abram, he just told him, go to a land that I will show you. He didn't tell him exactly where he was going, but he led them to Canaan. And when they came into Canaan, the text says that they traveled south to Shechem, and then from Shechem south to Bethel, then to Hebron, which is not too far from Jerusalem, and then as far south as Beersheba, which is at the border of what was Philistia at that time, the Philistine Empire. You see those places associated with altars. The text says that Abram came to Shechem, and there he built his first altar. In verses 6 and 7, Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the oak of Moreh, and the Canaanite was then in the land. And Yahweh appeared to Abram and said, to your descendants, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. And the point of building an altar is Abram recognized not only that that was the land God was giving to him, but that that was the place where God was. That was the place of encounter. Altars are built in at, at, the, at a point that is a perceived interface between the worshiper and God himself. So he builds an altar there as a testimony to his understanding that this is the land that God is going to give to him. God says that, but also that that land was God's habitation, the place where he would dwell with his people. So already we understand that Canaan is to represent restored sacred space a kind of coming back to Eden, so to speak. And you see as the text moves forward, it speaks of Canaan in that language, right? A land of milk and honey, where you will inhabit cities you didn't build, and you will drink from wells you didn't dig, and you will gather food from fields you didn't cultivate. A place of abundance, fruitfulness, rest. From Shechem, then, the text has Abram journeying south to uh, the area around Bethel, which means house of God, and there he builds his second altar, also acknowledging, again, God's presence with him. Bethel becomes very important in the Jacob story, as we'll see when we get there. Then we have this interlude in Egypt where there's a famine in Canaan, and Abram and and, uh, Sarai go down to Egypt. And there, you know, he's fearful of what might happen to him because You know, his wife is beautiful, and so he tells her, whoever we encounter, tell them you're my sister. Because if if they know you're my wife, they might kill me to take you. Well, anyway, Pharaoh ends up, uh, some of his men see her, and they end up taking her into Pharaoh's harem. And God has to intervene and deliver her, at which time they return back 
into uh, Canaan. And I'll talk about the significance of that a little bit more in parallel with chapter 20. But the point at this, uh, that I want to make at this point is to say that that interlude in Egypt, even though God intervenes, you can see that Abram does not regard that as part of his inheritance. He builds no altar there. And in fact, when he leaves, he immediately returns to Bethel and the altar he built there. So the text wants you to see that there's a particular area that God has marked out for the covenant inheritance. And in a sense, this is Abram as a kind of view to what will come to his descendants, his first exile from the land because of a famine. And that will occur later in the time of Israel with Joseph. And it it becomes a kind of recurring theme. But exile from the land, but being brought back again. So as Abram continues south, he he will continue to build journeys or uh, um, altars, all with the the conviction that all of that land as he moves down through it was Yahweh's inhabitation. Everywhere he built an altar, he believed that God was there. And that was part of the covenant kingdom pledged to him. So when he gets back to Canaan, then God has him, in a sense, look over the land. And he says, all that you see, this is the inheritance that I will give you. And then he has him symbolically walk through the land, which is his laying claim to it. It's Abram owning God's word that I will give you this land. He's, in a sense, symbolically taking possession of it, walking through the land. And then he he makes his way down to Hebron where he builds his third altar. And it's while he's at Hebron that God ratifies his covenant with him. So we see the ratifying of the covenant then in chapter 15. 12 has just a bare set of promises. Then God begins to elaborate and elaborate and elaborate. And finally, the great elaboration comes in the ratifying of the covenant in chapter 15. And I'll just read the couple of verses. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, Do not fear, Abram, I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. And Abram's name means father of a people, incidentally. And Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless? God's already promised to make him a great nation. He's childless. He was 70 when, 75 when they left Haran and entered into Canaan. And if you note when uh, Sarai, his wife, who becomes Sarah, when she's introduced, the, the only description of her is that she was barren. She was without child. The very first thing you know about Sarah is she was barren. So Abram's old, she's old, she's always been barren, and so that's why he says, what inheritance are you going to give to me? I'm childless. Is it going to be a servant in my house that you're going to raise up and in a sense allow this promise to be worked out through? And the word of the Lord came to him saying, no, this man, a man in your house, a servant will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. So now at this point, we know that this will be an actual descendant of Abram. He will make him a great nation through descendants who will come from his own body. Note that nothing's been said about Sarah at this point. But he tells him, go out and look at the heavens, count the stars if you are able to count them. If you can, that's what your descendants will be. That's the number of your descendants. And he believed God and it was reckoned to him for righteousness, that God would build this great nation 
this multitude of people from him. He believed God for that promise. So two things that are revealed as further development in the ratifying of the covenant here is the pledge of a genetic heir, a son from his own body, in view of the promises, and also, as we read on, that there will be a delay in inheriting the covenant land. This will not happen right away. Your people will be impressed, oppressed and enslaved, your descendants, for 400 years afterwards, they will come out with many possessions and take control of this land. So that, that's the, uh, the, the, the ratifying of the covenant. And the next thing that we see then is, okay, Abram is to have a child, but Sarah's always been barren, and she's well past childbearing years. So together, Sarah and Abram reason that perhaps the way this is to work is that it will be through one of Sarah's handmaidens. So they conclude that perhaps Hagar is the one that God intends to bring this heir forward with. So Hagar is taken as a wife to Abraham. She bears a son, Ishmael. Yishmael means God hears, and that becomes a part of the story. Because as soon as that child is born, even though it was Sarah's idea, she's jealous and she's envious, and she begins to persecute Hagar and this son who is born to her, to the point that Hagar flees, and God reaches out to her. Verse 7 of chapter 16, the angel of the Lord found Hagar by a spring in the wa- in, of water in the wilderness, by a spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from? Where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from the presence of my mistress. And the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress, submit yourself to her authority. Moreover, the angel said, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they shall be too many to count. A kind of parallel with the covenant promise. And the angel of the Lord said to her further, Behold, you are with child and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Yishmael, because the Lord has heard. He's given heed to your affliction. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand will be against him. And he will live to the east of his brothers. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God who sees. Have I remained here alive after seeing him? Therefore, the well was called Be'er Lahai Royi. The God who sees, hears. Behold, it is between Kadesh and Bered. So she bore him a son. Abram called the name of the son Ishmael. He was 86 when Hagar bore Ishmael. Now, chapter 17 is where God elaborates again on this covenant. And here what he does, among other things, is Sarai is renamed and Abram is renamed. God had told Abram that he would be the father of a great nation and that in him all the families of the earth would be blessed. Now he tells him that this blessing is going to involve his fatherhood being over a multitude of nations. He says, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you. I will multiply you exceedingly. And the Lord said, Behold, my covenant is with you. You shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall you be called 
Avram, father of a people, but Avravham, father of many peoples. Avravham, father of many peoples. For I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make nations of you. Kings shall come forth from you. And here it is where God establishes the covenant identity in the form of circumcision. Everyone associated with Abram's household, not only the ones who are born to him, but those who are servants in his house are to be circumcised. And already here we have the first indication of, again, Abraham becoming the father of a multitude of nations, not just genetic offspring, but others as well, because even servants are a part of this covenant people. Already, if you want to say, it'll be Jew and Gentile. And that will be important carrying forward. So in connection with that, also, Sarah's, Sarai's name is changed to Sarah, which means princess. Her name is changed to princess. Verse 15 and 16, I will bless her. I will give you a son by her. I will bless her. She shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall come from her. So at the time God ratified the covenant, he told Abram, this descendant that I, uh, the one through whom the inheritance will be carried out, the one through whom the covenant promises will be fulfilled, will be a son from your own body. Now, he says, it's going to be also a child from Sarah. Remember how they, they thought, okay, well, maybe Hagar's the one. God said, from your body. Now, he says, also from Sarah. She's to be the covenant matriarch. Well, how can that be? They're both old, well beyond childbearing years, and she's always been barren. She's never had children. So that becomes the setting then for chapter 18, where God promises... You have these three men come into Abram's camp, one of whom identifies himself and speaks as Yahweh himself. But these three men from Yahweh come into the camp to speak with Abram, and it's that point that they promise that a year from then, Sarah will conceive and give birth to a child. And Sarah overhears this, and she laughs. How can that possibly be? So that child is to be named Yitzhak. He laughs. He laughs. God will have the last laugh, right? Every time she would see Isaac after that, she would remember how she had not believed. But God had kept his word. So we see that in chapter 18. Um, and, and all of this takes place then in the region of Hebron. Then in chapter 19, we have the Sodom and Gomorrah episode. And then in chapter 20, we have another one of these weird episodes with Sarah and a, and a pagan king. In this case, with Abimelech, who's a Philistine king. So chapter 20, Abram journeyed from there toward the land of Negev and settled between Kadesh and Shur. And then he journeyed in Gerar, which is in the land of the Philistines. Once again, the same sort of episode. Tell them you're my sister, right? Don't tell them you're my wife. So she ends up being taken into the harem of Abimelech. And God appears to Abimelech in the night. 
And he says, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is married. And Abimelech had not come near her. And he said, Lord, will you slay a nation, even though blameless? Did he not say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, yes, he is my brother. It was in the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands that I've done this. And God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that in the integrity of your heart you have done this, and I kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. And so now restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet. He will pray for you and you will live. But if you do not restore her, know that you will surely die, you and all who are yours. So the next morning, Abimelech confronts Abram and he says, why have you done this? What have you done to us? How have I sinned against you that you brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? Basically brought death and desolation into my kingdom. Abram said, because I thought surely there's no fear of God in this place. They will kill me because of my wife. And besides, she actually is my sister, the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And then she became my wife. And it came about when God caused me to wander from my father's house that I said to her, this is the kindness which you will show to me. Everywhere we go, say he is my brother. So Abimelech then took sheep and oxen, male and female servants, gave them to Abraham, and he restored his wife. And he said, behold, my land is before you. Settle wherever you please. And And so he blesses Abram in that sense. And Abram prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech and his wife and his maids so that they bore children. For he had closed fast all the wombs of the household of Abimelech because of Sarah. So where that leads us then to is a later episode that we see in chapter 21, where Abimelech has now seen the greatness of Abram, this man Abraham, that God is with him. And he goes out to meet him later, and he tells him, show favor towards my people and my kingdom. Don't raise your hand. We know that God is with you. So you know, deal kindly with me and my kingdom. This is a Philistine king asking Abraham to deal kindly with him. And that becomes important. I mean, certainly you think about how Israel would have understood that in terms of their historical conflict with the Philistines. But anyway, out of that encounter comes a covenant between Abimelech and Abraham because Abraham says, I'll do this, but then you have to restore to me this well. That, that we had dug and has been seized by your men. And so they make a covenant that becomes on Abraham's behalf his first permanent foothold in the land of Canaan. A well was a place of permanence, right? When they went, they would drill, they would dig wells because you had to have water. And if you had a well, it, it allowed you to be established in a place. So when Abram says, restore this well to me, it's in order that they would have a kind of permanent inheritance, a place in the land. And that place then is named Beersheba. That's at the southernmost. Like I said, this is really where the land of the Philistines begins. And Abraham doesn't build an altar there, but he plants a tamarisk tree and he calls on the name of the Lord. In the past instances, he builds an altar, calls on the name of the Lord. Now he plants a tree, calls on the name of the Lord. And so the tree represents a kind of altar in a sense. Well, why is that altar important? 
or why is that tree important? The tamarisk is known for its hardiness and ability to survive in, in a hostile environment in dryness, in bad soil. And so it speaks of perpetual flourishing life in the face of adversity, even impossible circumstance. So the tamarisk tree planted by the well of Beersheba would henceforth serve as perpetual testimony that God is a covenant-keeping God. He has already given to Abraham a foothold in the land. The inheritance of the land would not come for many centuries. But he has given him a foothold in the land. And so that permanent Beersheba becomes the southernmost part of Abram's journey through the land of Canaan in establishing altars throughout the land. And so Beersheba looks back to the covenant and looks back to God's uh, covenant keeping, but also therefore looks forward in proclaiming God's faithfulness. I say on page three, Beersheba was the foundation for Israel's full inheritance and dominion in Canaan. And the fact that it sat on the border of the future Philistine kingdom anticipated the day when David, the regal son of Abraham, would break the Philistine stronghold and establish the fullness of the kingdom pledged to Abraham. Israel would never deal with the Philistines until David. They would never conclusively deal with the Philistines until David. So this is a kind of beginning. It's looking forward and anticipating the day when that conquest will come. Well, with that, then, just to very kind of briefly talk about these these interlude episodes. As I say, you have uh, in chapter 14 the the battles between the four kings and the five kings, and Melchizedek is introduced in that context. And then you have the Sodom and Gomorrah episode in chapter 19. And without getting into all the details of those, we have to ask the question, why did the writer choose to include them in his telling of the Abraham story and building his case concerning Abraham? And I think what we can say very easily is that those episodes testify again to Abraham's status and greatness. In, the, in chapter 14, you have five kings going to war against four kings, and the four kings beat the five kings and their armies. And then Abraham goes out with 318 men, trained men of his household, and he defeats the four kings, and secures Lot's release. So the text wants you to see a kind of, remember God had said, I will make you a great nation. Victory, triumph, dominion, right? And you see Abram in a way that nobody could imagine. These four kings are mighty enough to defeat five kings, and yet with 318 men he goes out and he defeats them. And it's in that context then that Melchizedek comes out with the king of Sodom, who is one of the defeated kings, to present offerings to Abram. Blessed be the God of Abram, right? So you see a testimony to Abram's greatness, his greatness under the covenant, that God will, in fact, secure and bring this about. And the same thing in chapter 19, more from the mediatorial standpoint. You know, that's the context where Abram says, will you destroy a whole city because 
What if there are 100 righteous people? What if there are 50? What if there are 45? What if there are 40? What if there are 30? And he keeps walking it down. So he's, he's standing as intercessor. Again, the one through whom all the families of the earth will be blessed. And that becomes the same sort of idea um, with the episodes involving first the Egyptian pharaoh and then Abimelech. Those two accounts of Sarah going into a harem very closely parallel each other. They're an echo of each other. But the second one also amplifies the first one because it shows more explicitly the failure of Abram. In the case of the Pharaoh, Abram only had the promise of God that he would make him a great nation. By the time you get to chapter 20 and Abimelech, not only does Abram know that this covenant depends on a son from his own body, it depends on a son from Sarah. So the promise and, and the way in which God is going to accomplish these, these covenant promises, it's developed to the point that when Abram delivers over Sarah to Abimelech, he's far more culpable. He's effectively nullifying the covenant. He knows that Sarah, within a year, is to have a child, and he, and he allows her to be taken into the harem of a pagan king out of fear for himself. And the other side of that is the irony of the fact that you have Abimelech who proclaims his innocence and God affirms his innocence. And Abram is the one who has utterly despised the Lord, despised his covenant, thrown the covenant under the bus, so to speak. And yet God says to Abimelech, Abram is my man. He will pray for you and I will relent of the calamity that I brought upon you. And so if we don't understand what's happening there, we say, what's the problem here? God clearly knew who was in the right and who was in the wrong. I thought God rewards the righteous and punishes the wicked. And yet he exalts Abram in the sight of Abimelech and he punishes Abimelech who's done nothing wrong. So if it's strictly a matter of God acting on a moral basis, the story doesn't make sense. But if we've been reading it in the light of the the larger narrative, we say, I understand exactly what's happening here. God is being faithful to himself and faithful to his covenant. He, by covenant oath, chose Abraham to be the one through whom his blessing would go out. Abram is the mediator of the Lord's blessing to all people. Therefore, for God to not set Abram, Abraham, in front of Abimelech as the point of blessing would be for him to deny his own covenant grant. And the point the text wants you to see is that it has nothing to do with Abraham. It has to do with the God who is faithful. And in both of those instances, if it were up to Abraham, the covenant would not have gotten any farther than him. And so these are my concluding statements. You know, the the Abraham narrative shows us, it lays out for us the fundamental nature and the governing principles of God's covenant with him. First, it was a covenant whose fulfillment would involve God bringing life out of death. He did it in just the fact of Sarah being barren. 
but also in intervening twice to bring, in a sense, Sarah out of death into life to preserve the covenant in these episodes of her being taken into uh, pagan harems. And while the covenant secondly obligated Abraham as covenant party, he was to walk before the Lord and be blameless. He was to uphold his own obligation as covenant son of God. That covenant didn't ultimately depend on him. If it did, it wouldn't have gotten any farther than him. In both cases, God had to intervene. Not in a way that he set aside his covenant with Abraham, but he actually upheld it. God would secure the covenant's continuance and he would guarantee its promises in spite of the failure of the human parties. And as the story now goes on, we just see with Isaac and then with Jacob and then with the the people of Israel, it's constant failure to fulfill their covenant identity and calling. And ultimately, Israel's prophets will begin to reveal the fact that God will cause the covenant to be fulfilled, not just from his side, but from the human side. The covenant demanded that Israel be Israel, that the Abrahamic people be who the covenant called them to be, but they cannot fulfill their identity and calling. And so the prophets will later on begin to reveal that what God is going to do is raise up an Israelite from within Israel who will be the embodiment of Israel for the sake of the people and reconstitute Israel in himself. And so the the human dynamic of covenant fulfillment will be fulfilled, but through God's own hand in bringing life out of death. See, the story is already building the case with these themes, and it will continue to build on We can't just treat each of these episodes in a vacuum and say, oh, okay, here's Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay, here's Abimelech. Well, this doesn't make sense. God's punishing the, un- the righteous man who he acknowledges did nothing wrong. Is God immoral? Does God... We, we, we can't, you know isolate and truncate these things. We have to keep them within the way the writer is building the story. And by the time we get to the end of Genesis, we have all of the foundational pieces in place. And now it just builds up momentum as the prophets continue to speak and interpret and predict and promise so that by the time Jesus comes into the world, he says, if you knew the scriptures, you would know me. You would recognize me. These are the scriptures that testify of me. That's the way we have to read the Bible, not proof texting verses from the Old Testament that seem to mention Jesus or something. It's the whole story is the unfolding of this purpose and faithfulness of God. And at this point, we already see and should have hope. And for this was written for Israel, and they should have the hope in the context of their own failure. God wanted them to have the hope that he would yet cause the covenant to be fulfilled through them, but in spite of them. Their failure would not overthrow his purposes, but it would also not set them aside. He would intervene and cause Israel to be Israel. And that has huge significance even for our understanding as well. But that takes us then up to the point of the birth of Isaac, and that's where we'll pick up next time. So hopefully, again, we're seeing the kinds of things that we want to look for and the sorts of clues and the way to interpret the pieces in terms of the larger story. And we want to keep those pieces in mind. 
because those themes and ideas and symbolic representations will continue to be fleshed out as the narrative continues to build. Well, let me pray, um, and then we'll, we'll be done. Father, I pray for each one here that you will help each one to more closely understand and more closely conform to this marvelous story that has its yes and amen in Jesus our Lord. Father, we are your people. We desire to know you. We desire to walk with you in truth. And we know that your goal for for us as individual people and ultimately for the, the human race and ultimately for the whole creation is that all things will be transformed and be summed up in Jesus our Lord. And certainly for us as human beings, our destiny is to be fully conformed to his likeness, to share his mind, to be the radiance and the fragrance uh, that is him. And Father, that means that we must know him more thoroughly, that we must understand his person and work, your own glory that is in his face. And this means that we must understand the scriptural story that paints that portrait, that discloses him, that causes us to see him in truth. Father, help us to be disciples. Help us to be Christ followers in truth. And we pray that your spirit will continue to lead us and will continue to build us up. His coming into the world was in order to impart the life and the likeness of Christ to human beings and to perfect those things to be the bearer of all that is Christ, such that the world of human beings would be taken up in him and attain to their inheritance of all that he has inherited. And so, Father, we pray for your Spirit's leading, for his guidance, that as we come to the Scriptures, as we read, as we pray, as we meditate, that your Spirit will continue to form the truth, the life, the likeness of Christ in us. I thank you for each one here. I pray for your mercy upon them. I pray, Father, that we would uh, prove faithful to this calling and to the truth that you have given to us, everything that pertains to life and godliness in Jesus our Lord. We ask these things and offer them all up to you in his name and for his sake. Amen.